Well, turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible, I believe it's on page 826. In Matthew 21, we're going to look at the first 11 verses together. We're going to look at the narrative recounting the Lord Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is one of the staple Palm Sunday texts. If you've been in or around the church, uh, this is a text that is familiar to you. Uh, Most of us have read it many times before. And while it is familiar, it's my hope uh, that this passage of Scripture would bring us fresh grace this morning. And the main focus I want to take is on a question that is asked in this text. Who is this? Who is this man riding a donkey into Jerusalem? This is the question that is raised in verse 10, which we'll read in just a moment. This is the question that everyone is asking. All of Jerusalem is stirred up as Jesus enters the city. And they're all asking, who is this? Matthew provides the answer for us in the text. Specifically on two separate occasions, both pointing at the same reality. The first we see in verse 5. Verse 5 is a quotation of Zechariah 9.9. Your king is coming to you. And then secondly, in verse 9, we'll see Jesus is on the donkey. The crowds are spreading their cloaks and palm branches on the road before him. And they're going before him and after him, shouting these words. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those two titles are what I'm going to run with this morning. Your king is coming to you. And Hosanna to the son of David. Those are the two things we're going to chase this morning. Those are the answers to the question, who is this? And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask, number one, why Matthew included these titles. We're then going to look at the history and weight behind these titles, specifically the Son of David. And then number three, we're going to ask, how might seeing Jesus as the Son of David change the way we see and live the Christian life? But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, beseech, that you would bless the preaching of your word that I would direct your people to the Lord Jesus and that we together would behold him and dwell secure. We ask in his name. Amen. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village In front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, 
the Lord needs them. And he will send no and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So the main thrust of today's sermon is going to fixate on that question, Who is this? Uh, The answer being, He is king. He's the son of David. The first thing I want to do is ask why Matthew would use uh, this language. Uh, Matthew does use this language a lot of the son of David. Uh, He's going to use it five, uh, I'm sorry, not five, nine times in his gospel. He's going to begin his gospel in Matthew 1.1 by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew will record two separate instances where blind men cry out to Jesus saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew records a mother crying out for the sake of her daughter, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And then just a few verses after the passage we're looking at today. We see the chief priests and the scribes become indignant because they hear children in the temple crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And then there's a final instance in Matthew chapter 22. The Lord Jesus is conversing with the Pharisees and he asks them, Who is the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees correctly answer, he is the son of David. It's important to remember who Matthew is writing to. Matthew's gospel is primarily directed at Jewish Christians, meaning those Jews who had been brought to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and had broken with their synagogues or maybe been excommunicated from their synagogues and were now a part of the church. That's who he's writing to. It's why out of the four Gospels, Matthew's is the most Jewish. He's writing to Jews and he is going to use language and he'll have categories that they understood because of their common culture and tradition. For example... When I say 9-11, what comes to your mind? 
the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center in New York City on September 11th, 2001. All I have to do is say two numbers. And your mind instantly goes to uh, this place filled with experiences and memories surrounding that day. You can ask any American who is old enough to remember 9-11. And you just say those two letters and you'll find there is common cultural connection that all of us have towards that infamous event. Well, the same thing is true of Matthew writing to these Jews who have, been, who have been brought into the church. All he has to do is say three words, son of David. And instantly their minds are all going to go to a common but deeply rich part of their own history and to long-held hopes for the future. They all would have uh, understood what Matthew was communicating when he calls Jesus the son of David. He's pointing to the fact that the Messiah has come, that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God to his people. That's what he wants them to see. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has kept his word, and so you can trust him. You can trust him. You can cry out to him. Just like the people in this text, you too can cry out, Hosanna, which means God save us. That's why he's writing. He wants to direct the eyes of his readers to the fulfillment of the promises of God in Christ. So that the people might too cry out, Hosanna, in faith. That's why I wrote it. Second thing. I want us to see is the history and weight behind the title, Son of David. When I say 9-11, your mind instantly thinks about that event in September. Uh, when, the son, when Son of David is said, instantly their minds go back to 2 Samuel 7. We need to talk about David if we're going to talk about the Son of David, right? That makes sense. A good place to begin would be with King David himself, King David's probably the most well-known of the kings of Israel. He was uh, the warrior poet who wrote most, a lot of the Psalms and also defeated Goliath. He's also the imperfect king who committed grievous sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. We as Christians are quite familiar with King David. Well, we need to go to 2 Samuel 7. At, at that point, God had established David's kingship. David has moved to the White House of sorts. He's in Jerusalem, on the throne, reigning in the capital city. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant there uh, to Jerusalem to be in the city with the people. And we're also told that he has been given rest from his enemies. He's not fighting anymore. There's, there's no marauding bands of soldiers who are roaming the country, tearing things up. He's experiencing peace. 
And in this context, we're told that King David is struck with something. He says, you know, I'm, I'm in this great city in, at peace in this great house. But the ark of the Lord is dwelling in a tent. If you remember the last half of Exodus that we did a while back, we talked a lot about the tabernacle. And David is saying, how, how is this right? That I am in this great house, but the ark of the Lord is dwelling in a tent. And this bothers him. He wants to remedy this. And he says, well, I'm going to build the Lord a grand house. That's what he wants to do. Do you remember how the Lord answers this desire David has? The Lord sends his prophet, a man named Nathan, to come to David and speak. And Nathan comes to David and says, David, you aren't going to build me a house. But I'm going to build you a house. Not a literal, physical structure. Not a building. I'm going to do something bigger, greater, more transcendent than anything you can imagine. I'm going to build a dynasty, a kingdom, and a son from your line will sit on the throne and reign forever. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. Nathan delivers these words to King David. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's the promise. An everlasting reign. A never-ending dynasty. And this is what all kings wanted, right? This is what they desired, to have this dynasty, uh, this dynastic rule, that their children and their children's children would rule after they're dead and gone. And God says to David, after your death, I will raise up offspring after you from your line. I will establish his kingdom. He will sit on the throne and will have peace from his enemies. So this is the weight behind those three words, son of David. All the Jews knew about this promise. All the Jews would read Matthew's words, and they would know, oh, he's talking about the king from David's line who's going to reign forever and ever. And this was their great hope. This is what they were longing for. This is what they were waiting for. Well, why hadn't it happened? You know, in Matthew's day, there wasn't a king. Or if there was a king, he was just the Roman puppet because the people were under the thumb of the Romans. Where did the king go? There is a provision in God's covenant with David. The offspring of David would sit on the throne and reign forever provided he kept God's law. Okay, You keep God's law, you reign forever. You break God's law, your kingship will be taken away. 
You disobey God's law and you will be disciplined. You keep God's law, you'll reign forever. I'll remind you, we're speaking about a king and a kingdom, which means that the blessings and punishment here isn't just limited to the king, but also the king's subjects. All those people that the king rules over, the king is their representative of sorts before God. And so as the king goes, so goes the nation. And God will punish the people or reward the people based off the merits of the king. I'll repeat that. God will punish the people or reward the people based off the merits of the king. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And when we understand this, it helps us to understand the seemingly never-ending, revolving door of failures who occupied David's throne after his death. Those of you who were with us a, a year or two ago might remember us reading through First and Second Chronicles in worship. And I'm sure you remember hearing with great redundancy the words, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Those were words describing the kings who would come after David. Even Solomon, for all his wisdom, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Nadab did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Baasha did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahaziah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Jehoram, Jehoahaz, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, on and on we could go. They all did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, there were a few good kings, like Josiah, but there were no perfect kings. There, were, there was not one king who fully kept the law, and so God kept his word. As the king went, so went the nation. The king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he lost the throne, and the people were punished. And then in the, in the end, we see that there's no king left. There's no one reigning. And this greatly distressed the people. When would this king come? How, how could he even come? Since the kingdom itself was destroyed and the people were in exile. And even if there was a king and a kingdom, how, how could a king ever come and perfectly keep the law of God? Could such a king even exist? It might be helpful here to metaphorically think of kings as mighty trees, big, tall, strong trees standing strong and proud. But because of the condition that the Lord laid on this covenant with David, they don't have a mighty tree. They have a stump. And this brought the people grief. 
remembering what had been, seeing what was, and feeling unsure about the future. But there's hope. And it's helpful to have that image of the stump in your head, especially as you read the prophets. Jeremiah, for example, in 23, he also says something very similar in chapter 33. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute Justice and righteousness in the land. No more wickedness. Verse 6. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You ever cut down a tree in your yard? only to have it sprout up again from the stump? That's what Jeremiah sees and promises. A day is coming when the Lord will raise up a righteous branch from this stump. He will reign as king and deal wisely. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land, not wickedness, not what is evil in the sight of the Lord. His people will be saved, And will dwell secure, and his name will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. And Matthew is saying, He's here. Jewish brothers and sisters connect Jesus Christ to this historical event, this thing you've been taught about since you were a child. Our great hope of our people is here. The one Nathan spoke about is here. The one that Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah and the rest spoke about, he's here, and his name is Jesus. That's the history and the weight behind the title. The third thing I want us to see is how might seeing the Lord Jesus as the son of David change the way we see and live the Christian life? First, remember that God keeps his word. He always does what he has promised he would do. Near the end of 2 Samuel 7, in verse 28, David makes a confession that is simple but profound. 2 Samuel 7, 28. O Lord God, you are God in your words are true. That's the confession he makes. We'd probably do well to write those words down and to put them in a place where we can see them. Oh, Lord God, you are God and your words are true. There will be days when we need to hear those words. There will be seasons when we need to hear those words. Some of you might be in the midst of one of those seasons right now, a difficult season. 
a hard season. Maybe it's battling anxiety or worry. Maybe it's hurting from emotional pain or heartbreak. Maybe it's sickness. Remember those words. Oh Lord, you are God. And your words are true. Irregardless of circumstance. I will trust that you are God and your words are true. You know, that's what growth in the Christian life looks like. That's what sanctification looks like. Sanctification isn't you victoriously striding through life, defeating every sin and demonstrating your impressive faithfulness to God. It's trusting God through the various trials and circumstances of life and knowing that his word is true. Christian growth happens when we get that news and by his grace we're able to say, Lord God, you are God and your words are true. There's another application. We can be a lot like David in many respects. And just like David wanted to build a house for God, we have times when we want to build something for God. We want to strive for him. We want to work for him. We want to do something great. And what our motivations are for this, they probably vary from person to person. But what can happen is that in striving for him, we can take our eyes off of him And burn ourselves out. I found this note in my study Bible. It was tucked away in a little paragraph under 2 Samuel 7. It's under the section where David is wanting to build a house for the Lord. And this note said, quote, How easily our imaginations can be captured by. And our energies exhausted by what we want to build for God. When what he really wants is for us to sit attentively, witnessing what he is building, so that we may marvel and give thanks to him. I hope that resonates with you. That we can become so fixated on what we want to do for him that we don't rest in what he has done for us. Instead of having a to-do list constantly in your mind, what if you just sat and marveled at what he has done for you? How might your day look if it began by simply looking to him and marveling at what he's done? Might you love your neighbor more? Might you love your spouse and children better? Because at the forefront of your mind is not a list of things that for you to accomplish. At the forefront of your mind, you have the grand news of what he has accomplished for you. What has he accomplished for you? A perfect righteousness. You remember the condition 
that was laid on God's covenant with David. The king from David's line would reign forever, provided he perfectly kept God's law. Christ has done it. If you've ever wondered why the sinlessness of Christ is so important, this is why his reign will be forever. And not only him, but also his people. Remember, as the king goes, so goes the people. As Christ goes, so goes his people. And his kingdom and reign will be forever. Because he kept the law perfectly. He accomplished righteousness for his people. He is our representative before God. If Jesus had sinned, your eternal righteousness would be at stake. But he didn't. He never did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not once. And so if you're trusting in him, you can dwell secure. You are safe. Even though you are a sinner. Yes, there is sin in you. There's sin in me. But he was perfect for us. I hinted at this in one of my prayers earlier. This saying from Martin Luther, the great reformer. He had a phrase in Latin, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. Simultaneously justified and sinner. This is true of every believer. It's true for you. It's true for me. We are at the same time justified and a sinner because of this promise in Jeremiah 23. The king's name shall be the Lord is our righteousness. You will never be brought under the judgment and damnation of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our king fulfilled the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes in him. There may be righteousness for everyone who looks to him and by faith says, he is my only hope. He is my life. He is my security. As he goes, so go I. He, the perfect king, is my representative before God. He pleads on behalf of his people, and we are forever safely hidden in him. He is your righteousness. You will not be accepted by God because of your righteousness. You can add nothing to God's love and nothing uh, to your eternal security by your own righteousness. To use a colloquialism from the Lord himself, it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for you or me to earn God's favor. We are accepted. We are loved. We are secure because he is our righteousness. I'll end with this. The prophet Isaiah 700 years prior 
spoke of this coming king. The righteous reign of the branch. He foretold that this king would reign in wisdom and understanding. And that peace would come to creation. And you have all these wonderful images of the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard with the young goat. And Isaiah is telling us that this king isn't only going to change you and redeem you. This king is going to change all of creation and make all things new. There will be an eternal reign of peace. Creation will be changed. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then Isaiah says in chapter 11, verse 10, His resting place shall be glorious. That's our final ultimate hope. That his resting place shall be glorious. And we, his people, we redeemed sinners, will dwell there with him. And just as the Old Testament faithful looked ahead to the coming of the king, we look ahead with hopeful anticipation for that final day when the king returns. When we are there in his glorious resting place with him. And everything sad becomes untrue. And everything becomes exactly as it should be. And so today I commend him to you. Your king, the son of David. Behold him. Trust him. Rest in him. He has accomplished your sin, he has atoned for your sins on the cross. And living a sinless life, he has accomplished your righteousness. Quit looking inward and obsessing over yourself, hoping you've done enough. Look to him and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would we behold our King that he would be our hope. He would be at the forefront of our minds. He would be the center of our affections. He would be the source of our good works. That we might, in gratitude and thanksgiving, do those things that you have foreordained for us. That we would love and serve one another, just as our Lord loved and gave himself for us. May we never take our eyes off him. We ask in his most glorious and holy name. Amen.